morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are in the world. Thank you for joining me for this week's edition of the SMIE Consulting Midweek Roundup. I'm your host, Marty Bennett, and on this week's Roundup, we're going to be taking a look at three questions we've been hearing from international educators this past week. It's Wednesday, September 15, 2021, so let's get right to the questions. For those that are new to the Roundup, you may not be familiar with the format today, but what we do is we look, we have a newsletter that comes out on Mondays called All the SMIE News Fit to Share, and that stands for Social Media and International Education News. That comes out Monday morning, 9 a.m. Eastern, to your inbox free of charge. You can subscribe uh, either through our newsletter, if you have a copy of it, uh, I'm dropping the link to the most recent edition, from this past Monday in the chat section or the comments section on the Facebook page for this event, for this live chat. But you can also go to smieconsulting.org slash subscribe and you can uh, fill out a quick uh, form to get the newsletter delivered to your inbox each Monday. So we'll take three of the themes we see in that newsletter each week and then we'll expand upon them here on the Roundup and give our thoughts more in depth uh, as opposed to just our hot takes that you see in the newsletter. And the three themes that we're talking about this week are, first, what is U.S. soft power worth in international education? Second, should Africa be on your radar for recruitment? And third, where will U.K. universities be expanding next? So we'll take a look at those three questions and more in the next half hour or so. But what I'd like to start with is one of my favorite topics, um, and this really came to light for me uh, in the earliest days of my work in international education, uh, when um, I had my first uh, first uh, director of international uh, talking to me about uh, the, the, the folks in the profession that are going to be the greatest service to you. And he said, these overseas advisors, and by them he meant what would become Education USA advisors in 1999. Those advisors will become some of your best friends because they're they're really the ones most plugged into what's going in on the ground in the, their various destination countries that you're going to want to work in uh, and recruit students from. So I, I, I took that on board and they certainly have uh, never steered me wrong in terms of my uh, professional development and finding insights in different markets over the years. Uh, well, part of uh, Education USA is it comes out of the State Department and that's their network of overseas advising centers. Uh, in 170 plus countries, 400 plus locations. And one of the first things I found out when I, when I was working for Education USA in, starting in 2008 is they had this list that they were always uh, very proud of. Uh, they called it Foreign Students Today, World Leaders Tomorrow. And it was a list of, uh, over the course of 40, 50 years, dozens and dozens of uh, world leaders who had had part of their education in the United States. And that always struck me as uh, kind of a, a what better way to promote your country than to have students from those countries come here, have positive experiences, learn about America, learn about our culture, and then go home and take those positive experiences back to their home countries and then have them become leaders in business and in industry, in edu education, in government. And for, uh, for, for that, that list has always resonated with me and sees, uh, seems to be a really solid rep, uh, kind of hook upon which to uh, develop a strategy uh, for your institution, for your country as a, as a 
primary destination for uh, international education. And that's, um, that, that list has always stuck with me as so, so valuable. It's kind of gone out of, um, out of print, at least. It's not a regular feature on uh, Education USA's site or in any of the, any of the uh, kind of common posts I see during the year. But uh, that gauntlet has been picked up in 2017. Uh, there was uh, uh, the Higher Education Policy Institute out of the UK uh, developed uh, what they're call, they call the Soft Power Index, and that's, uh, that's an annual thing since 2017. Uh, the UK was top of that list uh, back uh, as a, what the way they defined it as world, current world leaders who are educated in countries other than their own. And from that list uh, in 2017, the UK was, was at the top. Uh, um, but the US has had gained ground substantially every year since. So uh, UK now is in a comfortable second place uh, with France uh, in third. Uh, this is uh, some of the data from this report is, is very interesting. Uh, this is the fifth version in 2021 of the uh, Soft Power Index shows that the U.S. now has educated 65 currently serving world leaders, eight more than the U.K.'s 57. And France uh, is in third. Uh, some way behind uh, those three are Aust Australia and Russia. Uh, but France has, has seen a significant drop over the past couple of years as well. Uh, it's interesting to see the, why this is considered a, a key mark of soft power. And we've talked about soft power in the past here on the Roundup, mostly in reference to um, what China has done through their Belt and Road Initiative over the last uh, two decades, really, uh, to develop their influence in other parts of the world, particularly Africa, which we'll talk about later, uh, as, uh, as one of the most significant influences on uh, reasons why their reputation, their strength, their uh, world influence has grown is because of what they've done on the higher ed front. Uh, so that they see, among other things, it's also developing political relationships. And some of that's reflected here in the soft power index with uh, the world leaders as the key metric that they're using. Others like China, they're, they, they're seeing in international education, they see things a little bit more broadly, not necessarily leaders that were, have been educated in China. I think there's a long way off before uh, you'll see world leaders who have studied um, studied part or uh, where you see a, a significant number have studied part or, or, or all of their education in China. Uh, but what I do see is uh, China focusing on more macro level numbers uh, and just focusing on driving, uh, well, at least in terms of international education, driving students to China for study and using scholarships and some of these uh, some of these relationships that have been developed with these countries as part of that um, part of that process to grow uh, their reputation. So this uh, Higher Education Policy Institute uh, Soft Power Index is it does show uh, U.S. has actually grown uh, from 57 to 65 over that over that four-year period. They were just ahead of the U.K. just behind the U.K. in 2017, 57 to 58. Uh, that was reversed in 2018, 58 to 59, but then since then the U.S. has been on an upward trajectory and widening that gap with the U.K. So um, outside of those two, France is currently at 30. They were at 40 at one point in 2018. 
Um, Russia is at 10 and Australia at 10 as well, up from nine uh, four years, four or five years ago. So those are, those are the real, um, the big players in terms of soft power as it's calculated by H HEPI. So there's a Pi News article and then the HEPI uh, article related to the release of the soft power index that I'm uh, dropping in the links uh, to the comments section. But interesting to see that, um, that uh, what, uh, how, how different organizations will measure soft power. And as it relates to international education, I think this is certainly uh, very apropos to talking about, when we talk about perspective, I've mentioned this in the six Ps of uh, strategic international enrollment management that I've uh, been developed, developing over the last year and a bit. And that is one of the, that's the first and most important piece of the puzzle when developing a plan is understanding uh, not just your institution, but your country's place in the world when it comes to global student mobility and understanding that the um, what we're talking about here with regard to uh, the influence your country has and what what that means in the wider world you can point to the great the, the overall numbers of international students studying in the united states as a benefit you can talk about opt and stem opt as some of the major draws to the united states you can talk about the quality of u.s institutions in various rankings around the world as uh, indicators of, of why the u.s is number one and that's something you want to champion and why the u.s is should be uh, the number one destination for all international students so when we talk about these things in relation to soft power index uh, this is this is something that I think is important in terms of perspective you in your messaging to uh, future students you want to share what that what what their life might be like if they come to the United States not just your institution but to the United States first because that's a realization we need to have as uh, US international educators on the admission side and recruiting that the students you're going after may not are likely not just looking at the United States as a destination so they're not you're not just competing against other colleges in the United States that might be peers for you internationally that you're competing against other countries universities uh, and other countries as destinations first where students might be applying to two or three uh, institutions in three or four different countries so you have to have as in terms of your mindset as an institution, how you message to your prospective student audiences, have that those those kind of weapons in your in your arsenal that you can draw out, where you're not just talking about the United States as a some, an, a, a reason why a, uh, uh, by not just talking about the institution, uh, your institution as a reason why students should come to you, but talk about the benefits of the of the country as well. That the United States produces more world leaders than anywhere else in the world. Uh, if you have, um, uh, if you, if you, if that's of interest to, so it may not appeal to anybody if they don't have an interest in, in, uh, in economics. They want to come to the U.S. and make start their own business. That might be less important. But there are other metrics you can share that would help that student, uh, knowing that half of all startup billionaires in the United States are are from immigrant backgrounds or immigrants themselves or former international students. So those are the things you need to have in your arsenal and have that perspective that sharing not just your institution's success and reasons why students should come to you, but why international students should come to the United States. So if you, more, the more we incorporate that into our messaging in terms of how we present ourselves to future students, I think the better uh, we're giving those students that have 
uh, are looking for the reasons to pick one country over another, that's something you want to make sure that you're, you're, you're delivering everything that you can to that student, not just the benefits of your institution, which are going to be the primary drivers, but those little extras that can put them over the top in terms of knowing, hey, if I go to the U.S., I have a better chance of if I want to become a leader in my home country, I have a better way of doing that uh, if I study in the U.S. So use those things to your advantage in your recruitment efforts. So that's the first question. Um, what is it worth, uh, U.S. soft power, worth an international education? More than we realize. And I think that the, the bottom line is when we can apply what, we're, what we learn from these kinds of conversations about influence, about leaders, uh, world leadership, uh, about the overall numbers, about the values uh, of the U.S. in terms of uh, what we offer to international students in terms of the nation, in terms of uh, the policy and legal uh, implications of what you can do as an international student, the better we have a chance of recruiting them to the United States and more specifically to our institutions, depending on how well you communicate that. So let's move on to question number two. Should Africa be on your recruitment radar? And this is something that I think in, in larger scope of international student mobility, it is an area of the world that often gets relegated to second or third tier, if, even tertiary levels in terms of how highly valued it is as, um, as a future market for international students. I say that with a little bit of um, hesitation because that's not true in other countries. Uh, France uh, has made, uh, because of colonial ties, England because of colonial ties, have had a long history of uh, bringing students from the African continent to their shores, to their institutions for higher education studies. So there's that, that language uh, back, uh, traditions that help influence where students go um, that has driven them to the UK and to France in the past. The U.S., because of quality reasons, certainly has always attracted a large number. And up until recently, the uh, U.S. was comfortably number two uh, in the overall um, volume of students that are studying outside of Africa uh, as a destination. Uh, you look at uh, what, where we are now in 2020, there were um, 40,000 students, more than 40,000 from sub-Saharan Africa enrolled in uh, U.S. colleges and universities. That was an increase of 4% from the previous year. Uh, in the top 25 countries that Open Doors puts out annually, Nigeria ha is currently the only one in that top, top list. Uh, they saw growth uh, by 3% in 2020 uh, with just over 13,700 students. Ghana was second uh, on that list with 4,000. So there are some markets in that in that country in that in the sub-Saharan sub African region that are very um, very much up-and-comers and kind of ignored markets for a lot of U.S. institutions. I know there are some that will look at Africa and see, oh, it's only for students who are high need. They may there are some great kids there, high ability kids, but there are also high a lot of high need kids. Uh, that's not always the truth. Um, there, that's certainly the historical background. Maybe 20 years ago, that was almost universally the case. But you've seen as their, their economies have grown, and some countries have grown uh, at faster paces than even China has have grown uh, in, in the same period. You're seeing some of the growth there now reflecting a lot of what's possible for uh, those African nations as their, their economies have grown. 
maybe their higher ed capacity as it has been in other countries like China and India in the past that have driven large numbers of their students abroad uh, with various push factors out uh, there in Africa. That's some of those similar uh, trends are occurring where there aren't enough quality places at the top universities in country uh, for undergraduate studies. So you see many uh, undergraduate Africans looking for opportunities abroad. And this is something that I think we're, as we move forward, we're seeing a lot of, a uh, lot of uh, focus on Africa as an as a emerging market for, uh, for some uh, for for U.S. institutions. And I think there are key pockets that certainly uh, are uh, well worth uh, taking a taking a, a gamble on, and uh, that should prove successful if you do it right. Now, how you do that, 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 that's a conversation for another day. But in terms of this article, University World News article, it's entitled, uh, it's entitled Demand for International Studies Still Remains Strong. So you don't know it's about Africa from, just from the title, but as you get into it, you certainly see it's coming out of uh, the IC3 and IIE uh, recent uh, report, uh, International Student Mobility Flows and COVID-19 Realities, that came out a couple weeks ago. Uh, it talks about uh, that despite global travel restrictions, strict visa processing services, and stringent public health policies, uh, many governments are now encouraging universities to recruit international students from, from the African country continent. Uh, so in the African context, the article states, the, uh, the outward mobility of African students declined since the outbreak of the pandemic, but the number of students who were already studying outside their home countries remained stable. So I think that's uh, that's largely true, and you see, you've certainly seen that. Uh, we what we what we haven't talked about related to Africa yet is just the, is the presence of China in the mix. Uh, you've seen uh, China has actually overtaken France and the U.S. Uh, in terms of the number of students studying outside of their home countries um, as a as a destination. Uh, largely, again, due to their Belt and Road initiatives through scholarship opportunities they provided as part of their uh, their involvement or engagement with these other countries in Africa, uh, you, we've seen large numbers of Africans go to China for for studies. Uh, they're actually the largest uh, destination for African sub-Saharan African students it, it are those studying in China, uh, as opposed to France and the UK, which. Uh, France, U.S., and U.K., which are second, third, and fourth and on that list. 20, Fifteen years ago, China wasn't even on the top 20 as a destination country for, uh, for African students. So we see what that, that soft power, again, going back to our earlier, earlier question, is um, you, you're seeing some of that, those changes really take, take, uh, take effect uh, in terms of the raw numbers that we're talking. So uh, where this article breaks it down, though, uh, is in kind of what the future is looking like for African student interest in overseas studies. Uh, she, uh, the author breaks it down into three, into two clear categories of winners and losers. Uh, certainly uh, on the winning side, uh, the U.S., uh, U.K., and Canada are likely to gain, as they have in, from the article, ease travel restrictions to allow international students to re-enter the countries for study purposes and increased face-to-face -face instruction that has accompanied those actions. So that, those are seen as extent, very, very much positive influences on future, uh, future growth uh, for African students going to the U.S., U.K., and Canada because they have made efforts to 
open again uh, post-pandemic too, even though many of us are still in the midst of it, but open again their borders and allow for face-to-face -face instruction. Those are the things that students want. That's why they want to study outside their home country. They don't want to study outside their home country just to do an online degree. They want to, they want to have that in-country experience that, that helps them professionally, culturally, socially, uh, that helps them develop into the kind of person and with the kind of skills that they will really want to be in their lives. So uh, those countries that make that easier are those that are, are those who are going to benefit most qu quickly and probably most uh, substantially in terms of numbers uh, to their countries. So very interested to see where that goes what, uh, on, the, on the winner's side, if that actually bears out. I, sh I do think it will be the case because that access is so very important at this point coming out of a pandemic. Uh, on the loser side, we do have three countries the author identifies, China, Australia, and Japan, uh, that are not benefiting uh, based on their current stances related to study. You see in those countries um, that uh, the, the author anticipates, the, although the number of African students seeking higher education abroad is expected to fall significantly in some host countries, such as China, Australia, and Japan, other countries are likely to gain from their losses. And that's where she's talking about US, UK, and Canada. And when we talk about um, in why, why, they, why, they, why she identifies those three as uh, challenging markets to recruit in African students, it's because of that very access issue. Uh, Japan uh, has uh, still uh, not allowed uh, large numbers of students back in. China's not allowing anybody outside of NYU, NYU Shanghai students back in for over 18 months now. Uh, international students who had left and were, were not able to make it back before China shut its borders in 20, early 2020. Uh, you, you now see that, that them getting increasingly dissatisfied because they're not able to uh, continue their studies and they have to do everything online. Uh, and new students are getting put off by that. They're not, they don't want to have that experience. They want to be in country and, and uh, learn that language and study uh, with students from China and other countries. That's not happening. Same with Australia and New Zealand. You see their borders still closed to international students and may be reopening at some point in 2022. But as a result, they're going now almost two years, two full recruitment cycles without having uh, in-person studies for new international students. So that has huge implications and will take and, and, and some, uh, some, some uh, prognosticators in Australia and New Zealand, some say it's going to take four, five, six, seven years to rebound, um, maybe up to 2030 in New Zealand's case, there's some have said there, to rebound to their pre-pandemic levels. So you, you're seeing a really a sea change in what uh, had been two of the hotter markets, uh, certainly top destinations, um, Australia and the UK, and, and or excuse me, Australia and New Zealand, uh, suffering the, the effects of what their country's uh, policies have been during the pandemic. And you see China similarly, uh, uh, because of their closed borders, they're losing ground too. Uh, you would uh, anticipate their numbers will drop off uh, substantially this fall. Uh, so what we, we are looking at in this, this particular question on well, what are some of the uh, potentially emerging markets within Africa that uh, institutions will want to start paying attention to. Uh, they, uh, when we say emerging, Nigeria, Kenya, Ghana have always been kind of fairly high on the U.S. scale. 
uh, for for student recruitment from from the subcontinent. Uh, you see. Uh, Sub-Saharan Africa, I should say. Uh, they're also on this list. Uh, Ethiopia and Cote d'Ivoire uh, are considered uh, from this uh, from this uh, this point. Uh, really, the impo important regions, uh, important countries within uh, Sub-Saharan African region that uh, institutions should be paying attention to in terms of their recruitment efforts. So that's uh, question number two. Should it be on your radar? Absolutely. Uh, and there are certainly ways that you can go about making that happen. Uh, so we'll talk more about what that looks like in the weeks and months to come. Uh, the last question of the day, where will UK unis uh, be expanding next? Now, this is an interesting topic. Uh, UK universities, we know in the UK, they have uh, their own, um, actually have an international education policy, which we're all very jealous of. Uh, they have what they've called, uh, they have an actual position in the government uh, or with, within, the, uh, in, within the association world, uh, is considered their uh, UK, UK's international education champion. They actually have that as a, a, a title uh, for, for that person. Uh, that uh, Steve Smith is his name. They've identified a number of countries that uh, the UK should be um, expanding its influence in. Uh, in terms of universities and, and expanding educational offerings as well as transnational education offerings that the UK, because of recent policy changes, introducing the graduate route uh, for post-study work and that type of thing, uh, has made it a lot uh, more attractive uh, with the two-year post-study work visa. Uh, that uh, after a long period back to 2012 when that wasn't possible, that post-study work uh, as a separate visa category. So what I think, uh, I like this, this phrase uh, from the article, it says, uh, this is a Pi News article entitled, uh, UK must develop position in Brazil, Indonesia, South Korea, and Vietnam. That's according to the U University's UK International Report uh, that uh, and that there, there needs to be improvements made in these, these core markets uh, to uh, expand its influence and also some areas that they need to regain influence beyond uh, uh, in India and Pakistan, Nigeria, Saudi Arabia. Uh, this, um, this article does talk a lot about uh, what, uh, what the UK can be doing differently to grow, uh, that uh, they, they've talked about a, a scholar, one of the one of the post Brexit realities that many UK universities have had to look at is to keep that that significant group of their uh, student bodies, international student bodies, uh, developing a scholarship office uh, for uh, EU students. That uh, there needs to be uh, in certain markets these ones, particularly the ones the article identifies in the title: uh, Saudi Arabia, Brazil, uh, excuse me, Brazil, Indonesia, South Korea. I am Vietnam, uh, they're not necessarily Saudi Arabia because of their scholarship programs there, but you see the, the call for um, awareness is of UK as a study destination is low, uh, despite uh, them being priority countries uh, for UK's uh, international education champion, Steve Smith, uh, that, uh, that there should be uh, promotional delegations that have media and student-facing activities at the heart, including promotion of the graduate route, uh, that there should be scholarship uh, programs developed uh, for uh, UK and institutional scholarship dollars that should be committed uh, to um, 
to attract students from those markets to get the initial students in, in the door and, ex and continue that interest that way or develop that interest further there. So the UK, UK is certainly having that, these kind of conversations about uh, on a national level, which I think is great because those don't happen really in the US. Uh, we hear things at conferences that, oh, we're, we're starting to go here or we have a new scholarship program developing here that everybody should know about. But this is something that UK government and, and policy bodies in the U, UK are saying, here's where you at UK universities should be devoting time and energy, and here's what we can be doing as a government, here's what you can be doing as a university, where we can work together on those. So these are kind of the dream scenario things that in the US we want to have, uh, where we know that there's going to be government support for uh, recruitment uh, activities and uh, promotion of US higher education in, in certain countries more than others. Uh, that that needs to be a part of uh, our global uh, education strategy that we develop as a country. So certainly this, there are great models, certainly Canadians' success with their uh, streamlining their Im immigration uh, process there and making it a very clear process from student to work to uh, permanent resident to citizen. Uh, those things matter. Uh, what the UK is doing here in terms of how they position themselves with their post-study work, with their um, with, their, with the scholarship program certainly makes a whole lot of sense to me. Uh, and I think that these are kind of the kind of models that we can look at in the United States and say, here's where we need to get to. Uh, we're not there yet, uh, certainly not by any stretch, but there are certainly some great examples out there with where we can, uh, that we can leverage and model to, uh, as we start to develop our own policies here in the U.S. So that's all we have today from the Roundup. Uh, we thank you again for making uh, this midweek Roundup live chat a part of your weekly international edification. And we look forward to continuing the conversation in the weeks and months to come. So thanks again and have a great day. Cheers.